You're listening to All The Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. This week, we're playing stories from a variety show called Horror of the Everyday by producers from Refugee Art Project and New Moon Artist Collective, all about the real and impending horrors that follow us through our day-to-day lives. A content warning, these stories include references to and discussions of racism and sexual harassment. To kick off the episode, we spoke to one of the producers, Eleni Christou, about the collaboration. So New Moon Collective, we're a community arts collective based in Ferning Villa Artist Residency in Ashfield. There's four of us, myself, Roselle Flatley, Kim Sue and Amy Claire Mills. We've been practicing together for about three and a half years, um, doing lots of different community engagement and community art projects, spanning installation, workshops, events, you name it, we've, we've done it. When we were in our space in Lewisham, Refugee Art Project were already in Therning Villa through the Artist Residency Program with Inner West Council. And when our six months finished at the Lewisham Community Space, Inner West Council invited us to share the artist residency in Ashfield with Refugee Art Project. Our artist residency is this giant two-story heritage house that has a lot of history. Um, Some of it is quite spooky. We had this idea of having a horror night But then I was having a think one day about how we could make it different, Um, not just your traditional horror night with the traditional things like zombies and ghosts and witches. I was thinking, how can we make it more relevant and how can we talk about the horrors that exist every day? For example, I was thinking things like being a woman and walking home by yourself at night you know, terrible things that are happening in terms of climate change, refugee crisis. Um, These are our actual real horrors of the everyday. We reached out to our friend Mike and asked if he would help us realise this horror of the everyday concept, but through podcast form. So that was something that was really accessible and could be something that lived on and people could listen and engage with at their own leisure. In Eleni's story, she talks to her friend Fatima, a social worker based in Cyprus, about their shared experiences of street harassment. What was it like for you and Fatima to make a story about something so personal and painful like street harassment? Yeah, I, I think I actually didn't realise like how much it would bring up and hearing it over and over again, especially through the editing stage. Um, yeah, that was kind of a big emotional load to relive again and again, but it is a really important story to talk about. And, um, you know, I just want to point out, obviously it's not something that is exclusive to Cyprus Um, and it happens all around the world. And certainly it still happens to me in Sydney, but yeah, it was an interesting time to make the podcast for um, Fatima and I because she had been away from Cyprus and recently had returned and had forgotten how pervasive and how um, frequent the harassment, how much you know she experienced it. 
just, I think like a week before we recorded that segment, she had a really bad experience um, where she was followed to her car and just repeatedly harassed to the point that she had to get in the car and and drive away. Um, You know, because it wasn't just obviously us, it was happening to, but more often than not, it was happening to people, you know, mainly women in Cyprus who are perceived as migrants, who are perceived as not having a voice. We talked about Fatima is a woman of color. So her harassment was far worse than mine. Um, because of this perception in Cyprus that, um, yeah, you, you, you do have no rights and you, you don't have a voice, so the ramifications aren't there for harassing people like Fatima. I've always been someone that, like, walks everywhere. It's such a joy to, to be able to walk, and it's where I have my best ideas when I'm walking. Um, unfortunately... I do have really negative experiences and that has really impacted a lot of my behavior. For example, sometimes I think about changing or or what route I'm going and what I'm wearing or what time of day it is. And and I'm sure a a lot of um, people, especially women, feel this way and have experienced this kind of self-talk where you are like preparing to go somewhere and yeah you're kind of thinking about the risks involved even even during the day it's just ridiculous like do I want to walk down Parramatta Road am I feeling up to like having someone yell something at me when I'm you know walking down the street victims of this behavior you know it's them that change their behavior at the end of the day Hi, my name's Eleni Christou, and I want to tell you about my good friend Fatima Islam, who I met eight years ago at a bus stop in Nicosia, Cyprus. As soon as we met, we basically became inseparable. We bonded over so many things, and the most unlikely of all bonds was our shared experience of street harassment in the streets of Nicosia and Cyprus, which is something that our other Cypriot friends couldn't really relate to. So Fatima and I experienced a lot of street sexual harassment, particularly when we were walking to meet each other. We would, um, the first thing we would do was recount what had happened on the way to meeting each other. So most of the street harassment actually happened during the day um, in, yeah, in, in broad daylight with other people around which in itself is is quite shocking and quite confronting to actually think about how prolific this is. As a woman of colour, Fatima's experiences were much more severe and frequent. So I called Fatima up and we had a chat about what the situation is currently like in Cyprus. They stare at you, they might uh, try to make a noise uh, and a smile and, yeah, just because uh, the no vast majority of women do not react for various reasons, so they feel safe to keep doing it, keep asking for it. 
the sexual harassment on the street it's uh, it's everywhere in the world unfortunately because mm. most countries are uh, you know patriarchal and uh, women are perceived to be weaker and uh, seen as a sex object so yes disproportionately affect women not to say that you know men doesn't face exploitation but they have other sorts of exploitations that they encounter you know so yeah i mean it does leave uh, some impact in your behavior and how you interact uh, with uh, certain types of people approaching or things like that Cyprus has a significant domestic and rural workforce comprised of workers from the Philippines Bangladesh and Vietnam People of color, domestic workers and migrants are generally seen as not local by Cypriot society and are usually the targets of street harassment. Even if you were a domestic worker, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know you can be harassed, but this is a reflection of the social injustice how you are perceiving that you might be in need of extra money. I mean, you can be approached, you can be offered and if you don't take it at least uh, no one is going to react to that because uh, because of a uh, certain socioeconomic position and uh, the voicelessness in the political sphere that you know domestic workers our um, positions you know mm. uh in in cyprus and of course i mean uh, you know i and i know that uh, because of your immigration status because of your socioeconomic situation you do not want to get into trouble of going to going to police to report this harassment you don't want to talk about it you rather just brush it off as uh, you know and just see that it's a norm that you have to just face uh, every day Sunday is the worst day for street harassment. It's the only day domestic and rural workers have off and are more commonly seen in the city. Sunday was also the worst day for street harassment for Fatima and I. It's literally in half an hour from going home to the old town on foot. It might be like every five minutes on average you will have an encounter uh, or even more. Even if you react to those uh, situation on on the street, it gets on your nerve. I mean, it, it wins your mood for a while. You know, it's uh, it's not just like you react and it's over. It has an impact of your mental well being. So I remember when I was walking, I was listening to music. So as I don't have to hear anything, people, when I walk past, but you still observe the behavior. Because sometimes when you walk for half an hour in Cyprus, you might encounter 10 incidents like this and it gets on your nerve. Even though Nicosia is a small city, it's not a walking city. So when you do walk in the city, you tend to stand out more. In an attempt to minimize some of the street harassment she experienced, Fatima started cycling. And even when she did cycle, she still got harassed. And the cycling, it's you're faster, but it's still there are times that even with the cycling, you know, they will, uh, they saw you and then they will uh, come and park in front of you. So as you pass in front of them and then they will pass whatever message they want to pass to you or wait for you and things like that. As well as cycling, Fatima uses other techniques to minimize the street harassment. So the other thing that I uh, I usually do is walking against the car, not for the car. So as I I know he's coming towards me, and then this is more likely the person will pass than someone behind me. Fatima says that she reacts to street harassment around sixty to seventy percent of the time. 
So, and uh, then they just pass. And especially if you swear in Greek, it's uh, they pass faster because they, they, they suddenly get puzzled. Yeah. I mean, generally, they're not prepared to see reaction. Mm. And uh, this is what they encounter. So they get nervous. They get puzzled. And they're like, okay, this is a lost case. So they just move on. So Fatima thinks that there is more awareness of street harassment right now in Cyprus. However, it's mainly women that are aware. By talking about it and by making it known, at least, you know, that is at least one step. It's not abolishing uh, what is happening, but at least it's made known. Hopefully that will have an impact on the behavior of the people that it's not, you know, they will not just get away with this kind of thing, you know. Uh, I will hear more people like, you know, this is unacceptable for instance, or people are more aware of it. Change has to happen at a societal level and we need more men aware of of street harassment so they can talk to their friends about it. And I think that nothing's going to change unless men are talking about it and men are calling out their friends what sort of right it is that you feel you have that it's so easy for you to to harass a woman or to catcall or to approach a woman in such a violent manner? I mean, do you think that you came just because you were born with a dick and uh, who gave you that? I mean, how did you think that it's, it's just uh, okay to do that? That story was produced by Eleni Christou from New Moon Artists Collective. In our next story, dealing with everyday racism leads Zainab to take on a different name. Think about my name before that. I actually thought it was cool because it started with Z and it's cool. <laughs> When I came to Australia, my name was Zainab, Z-E-I-N-A-B, and I came in 2007. First I arrived, uh, I was pretty much comfortable with my name. People approached me well, and um, some saw it was Zina, the warrior princess, some saw it was very exotic, and I was pretty comfortable. Things picked up when I went to work, like I was totally relaxed with my name and identity and everything when I started working till um, some, some stuff happened. Like I was working and I had this very Islamic religious name, both surname and family name. And as I was working, I realized the guy wasn't cooperative. And um, I went down to warehouse and as soon as he saw me, he said, oh, you're not wearing hijab. And that's when I realized that uh, this is actually a topic, like me, my name, hijab, is all related. And then um, I realized this is something. And then I went on and I noticed that people, as Ramazan comes, they say, oh, are you fasting? Like, what are, why are you eating? Like, questions that um, defines my identity, defaults my identity. Somehow I felt I'm just there at work to tick these diversity boxes, especially when there was this um, diversity celebration gathering and 
HR came to me and said, why you didn't attend it? We wanted you to attend um, like as someone with Middle Eastern woman, Islamic, tick all boxes. <laughs> Other places, like when I had a phone call from somewhere like bank or something, my name was a big uh, a spelling and reviewing and would take sometimes three minutes just to because it was a long surname and... <laughs> People are defining me, like they're giving me this identity. Like um, I saw Australians are trying to define my identity. People in Sydney, like Australians, other cultures, um, non-Muslims. Yeah, these people making assumptions, yeah, because of my name. The thing is that when people make assumption, it's not a Muslim, it's not a brand, Islam is not a brand. There are level, different level of people with different religious levels. Some are practicing, some eat pork, some fast, some they just relax. There is not a recipe for all. So it's just uh, when people approach a Muslim, someone with Islamic name, that is just another human. Picking on people's name is uh, part of racist culture, like assuming that someone's name is um, Muhammad and then attacking them or criticizing them or defaulting what they're going to do is a part of racist culture. But after I had all these experiences with bank and work, I just so just to make my life smoother and don't give myself headache, I might just adapt a name that people approach it better and don't judge me and just uh, I could go ahead with my work and everyday life easier without wasting much energy. I made a big list of names and I asked um, my Australian friends to go through these names and say what they think about these names and give me feedback and some of them would say don't change, some would say change and it was actually a big process, like it took me two years and one day I just said okay I'm going to change it and I change it to this. <laughs> I just um, went online and applied for, I filled up a form and um, after a while there was a document came that I've changed my name. And then it was it. So I changed it to Sarah Mir, which um, Sarah is a name both accepted in Iranian and Australian culture and Mir was part of my surname which was short, and I thought this is a very short name, and I just say it. Some friends, um, they didn't like it at all. They didn't approve it at all. Like, they saw it was, a, mm, I was against myself, and it's bad, and I'm confirming racism with acting like this. Some people, they said it's good if I think this works for me, and it's just um, a name, it doesn't matter, and I could just change it later. It's been a few years since I've changed my name and I still haven't accepted this name as my name. I feel like it's more for people that they don't know me. Like everybody that's close, they still call me Zainab and I tell people that I meet and they make friends, I tell them to call me Zainab. 
This has caused me to actually think about the name, like the name and Islam itself. Like I think um, about the character of Zainab in Islam. And it's very interesting for me. Before I was just thinking, okay, this is a religious Islamic name and I never thought about it. And then now I think this character um, is a woman in a battlefield full of blood and she's wearing black hijab and holding a green flag and um, shouting for justice, like claiming justice. Now that I have changed my name, I realize that your name is actually very important. My name was a part of where I come from. And um, when I changed it to another name, I felt like I'm, tr- I'm trying to push myself into another culture and adapt another culture. And um, I didn't like it. I think Australians should accept people's name because... Um, it's just a name, like um, if someone's um, name is David, it doesn't mean they go to church. When we generalize um, names, we lose the uniqueness of individuals. I don't want to let go of my name, yeah, I still want them to know. Z-E-I-N-A-B? My old name. Later, maybe in a few years, I'll go back and get back my name, yeah. That story was produced by Zainab Mir from the Refugee Art Project. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. At All the Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our final story, we hear from the members of Hazim, an anti-racist Muslim death metal band. Hi everyone, my name's Saf Ahmed. And I'm Jan Yalchenkaya. And together we are Aziz. I'm an artist, writer, and community arts worker. I'm an academic in media studies, and my PhD was on melancholy in Turkish film and popular music. Uh, I play guitar and, and sing, or growl pretty much most of the time. And John, you play drums and also sing on one or two tracks. So Hazin are a death metal, black metal band committed to addressing the themes of racism and Islamophobia in Australian society. Um, Why black metal, John? Why death metal? What's the attraction? Uh, I moved to Australia from Turkey uh, about 13 years ago. And uh, so I was born and raised in Turkey. And as a teenager, I loved uh, death metal, thrash metal, black metal, all kinds of extreme metal music. And I guess the attraction for me started uh, through my love of horror literature and horror films. It just 
happened from there. And I was enjoying like the extremity of the music, how fast it was, how brutal it was. So I was also playing in black and death metal bands in Turkey uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, so I was playing in a black metal band around the age of 15, 16. Uh, we played some local gigs in my hometown of Antalya in Turkey. And at the time, I think one of the things that drew me into metal music was definitely the politics of it as well. So one of my uh, favorite bands when I was about 13, 14 was that sort of anti-racist, uh, anti-police kind of politics really affected me from a young age. And I guess even with Hazin now, we're sort of following some of those themes. <laughs> Same for me, I listened to a lot of heavy metal when I was a teenager growing up in the Blue Mountains. And I think I loved bands like Napalm Death and Carcass who seemed to be conveying political messages. Women's emancipation and capitalism and slave labor and all of that stuff. And that really kind of sparked my imagination and got me thinking that metal had a lot to sort of offer the world, that it could change the world and address these very heavy themes. Of course, every thrash band in the 1980s seemed to be singing about nuclear war um, and that sort of thing. And that was such a refreshing change from chart music, you know, which was all fluffy and all about having a good time. <laughs> The events of 9-11, the so-called war on terror, really ramped up anti-Arab hostility and anti-Muslim hostility in this country. And that's when it became a bedrock of political ideology and political policy, you know, whether it's the draconian war on terror legislation that was passed, um, or even linking the issue of terrorism to the arrival of asylum seekers and refugees and the extremely barbaric and racist policies of uh, mandatory and indefinite detention. So what better theme to address now than the all-pervasive everyday horror we have a disease. of contemporary Islamophobia. whether that's in our political classes, manipulating fear of Muslims and fear of refugees, or whether that's the sort of everyday backyard racism that sort of uh, people adopt. I think it's pretty widespread with the rise of the far right in Europe and neo-Nazi groups and anti-Muslim political parties across the board. Another example of that really horrifying example was the recent Brereton report, which showed horrific human rights abuses by Australian SAS service people in Afghanistan against Afghan villagers, that Australian troops would go over there and cut the throat of a teenage boy really says a lot to the degeneracy and the, the sheer abjection with which Muslims and Afghans were viewed. And of course, the political, you know, our political leaders and our top military brass are referring to this as a few bad apples. They see it as a cultural problem but they only talk about it in the sense that there's a culture of impunity and a culture of machismo and a culture that ignores the laws of war and military discipline. In my opinion, the real cultural problem is the culture of Islamophobia and coming to see Afghan people 
as less than human. And that's been something which I think is very widespread in Australian society. It's linked to the colonial state and the racism that Indigenous and, and Aboriginal people have faced for centuries. So that, I think, is what really needs to be addressed when we talk about a cultural issue. An important response to Islamophobia is not just to sort of defensively react to racist accusations on the back foot, you know, to apologetically say that Muslims aren't terrorists or whatever. I mean, that's been said a million times. I think the important way to respond is to really assert that identity and claim that space. Hazin, on one hand, attacks the discourse of Islamophobia, but we're also very inspired by Sufi mystical themes, and we're interested in using traditional instruments, such as the daf or the darbuka, or that sort of thing. I think we live with horror every day when you look at the colonial state and its insistence on using outmoded sources of energy like coal and gas, which contributes to climate change. There's a willingness to jump behind America in all their imperial interventions in places like Afghanistan, the deep-seated racism in this country towards Aboriginal communities and asylum seekers and refugees, which is completely unacknowledged, a history of racism and colonial um, appropriation that's never been addressed or properly dealt with. We live with that every day in this historical moment, and a lot of those things will only get worse. And I think in that context, we desperately need creative and artistic interventions. If they can mobilize people politically, that's great. But I think, you know, what can I do? As an artist, I think we need to address these things head on. We need critique. That story was produced by Safta Ahmed from the Refugee Art Project. All the Best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boomerang lands. The stories in our show this week were produced by artists from Refugee Art Project and New Moon Collective. They were originally heard in their variety show, Horror of the Everyday, made with support from Inner West Council and co-produced by Mike Williams. To hear more stories, go to newmooncollective.co slash projects or find New Moon or the Refugee Art Project on Instagram. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Angela Moran are our social media producers. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, 
and were made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Maddie McQueen. Thanks for listening.